So we're going to begin with Matthew 23 and verse 9 this morning. This is a chapter that the Lord is addressing to the multitudes and to his disciples, but much of it is addressed to the scribes and the Pharisees that he calls hypocrites. And so we'd like to look at some of these words of our Lord. There are seven or eight woes pronounced here by Jesus upon the scribes and the Pharisees. And I say seven or eight because if you're using the King James, there are eight. If you're using the other versions, there are seven. Some don't think there's sufficient authority in the authorities, the manuscripts for Matthew to include that, but it's also in Matthew, uh, in Mark, and Luke. But we're going to look at the seven woes that are pronounced here by the Lord. And by a woe, the Lord is expressing grief and distress, regret. In fact, the word woe really literally means alas for you. He's expressing pity and he's expressing anger. Jesus speaks with strong, forceful words. He charges them as being hypocrites. And we find that each time. Woe unto you, scribes, Pharisees, and hypocrites. We think of the word double-tongued for someone who's a hypocrite. He says something out of one side of his mouth for one group. He says something different out of the other side of his mouth for another group. He wants to please both groups. Double-tongued. Or sometimes we say they're two-faced. Abraham Lincoln was accused of being two-faced in a debate one time. And when it was his time to speak, he said, well, now I'll leave it to you, my audience. If I had another face, would I be wearing this one? Well, that would probably uh, go well in a debate. But we know what he meant by two-faced. They lived a life of acting apart. That's what a hypocrite does, who's continuously a hypocrite. He's acting out what he would like for people to think he is. It's different than the one we read about in Galatians 2 and 13. Here we find the Apostle Peter there in Antioch. He's fellowshipping, he's eating with the Gentile Christians. And lo and behold, and he's not expecting them, here comes a group from Jerusalem, coming from James, Judaizers, no doubt. And as soon as he sees them, he says, excuse me, he gets up and walks away. He doesn't want to be seen fellowshipping with Gentile Christians as a Jew. Well, it's a good thing Paul was there. Paul said, I condemned him to his face. Not only did Peter dissimulate, that is, act the hypocrite, so did his companion Barnabas and others who were there. But that was, a, that was an unprincipled action. But that was not characteristic of their lives, not of Peter, not of Barnabas and the others. But we're talking about the scribes and the Pharisees this morning. A conscious, crafty deceiver might be one way of looking at these men. In verse 13, where we will begin, we find his first accusation they were stumbling blocks. Let me read verse 13. But woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because ye shut the kingdom of heaven against men. 
For ye enter not in yourselves, neither suffer ye them that are entering, entering in to enter. Stumbling blocks. They would not enter themselves. Secondly, they would not allow others to enter. One reason I would suspect was that there are many rules made men refuse their demands. The human traditions that had been developed made them unable to keep those demands. That reminds us of Luke eleven fifty-two, where Jesus uses some of the same wording, but there he speaks about the key of knowledge. Eleven fifty-two. Woe unto you, lawyers, for you took away the key of knowledge. Ye entered not in yourselves, and them that were entering in ye hindered. Same thought, isn't it? But here he accuses them of having the key of knowledge, but taking it away. That is the key that unlocks the meaning of Scripture. All the Jews looked up to the scribes, the lawyers. They were the ones who studied the law. They're the ones who wrote the law. And if anyone should know it, it should be they. But they were stumbling blocks. They had other traditions, human traditions, that uh, didn't help. What Jesus is saying about these people who had the knowledge of, uh, the key of knowledge, he said they could not pass Bible 101. They were stumbling blocks. They hindered men by their example and their hostile teaching. They just refused to repent. They refused to accept Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah, the one he claimed to be, the Son of God. And people were following them. They were stumbling blocks. Preacher visiting in London said he saw a half dozen sandwich men. Now, I don't run across that expression, sandwich men, often, but they, had, uh, they were advertising. They had a board in front of them, they had a board behind them, and a strap across the shoulders. They, they, they walked along, and everybody saw them, they could read their advertisements. Sandwich men. But he said he saw these men walking down the streets of London, thoroughly starved. They were wretched looking, and their boards were advertising that one could get the best food in town in London. Famished wretches advertising the best dinners. Now, what does that tell us as Christians? Cheerless, cheerless men and women advertising the joy of the Lord? Not hardly. Paul said, rejoice always, and again I will say rejoice. Philippians 4 and 4. Now that's addressed to you and to me. If we walk around with a bad long face and we're not cheerful, what's that say to people who say, yeah, I want you to be a Christian like I am. Do our happy dispositions advertise the light of life or something else? It is the cheery spirit. 
the praiseful spirit that is the best commendation of the grace of God. And that should characterize every child of God. L.B. Meyer coined this expression. He said, we Christians are either Bibles or libels. You and I are either a Bible or a libel. Well, what does he mean by a Bible? Well, we mean that it's someone who obeys all the Bible. We're Bibles. We believe this is God's word and we're going to live by it. And if you follow us and see us, you'll know that we're living by it. We're either a Bible or, if we're not a Bible, we're a libel. And a libel is one, well, a statement defaming someone. That's a libel. And who are we defaming when we're not living up to the spirit of Jesus Christ? But Christ himself. Are you a Bible or a libel? Am I a Bible or a libel? With the second accusation, they were charged with excessive zeal in proselyting. Now, proselyte is a convert. I think this is the only place in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John we find the word proselyte or proselyting. But we find it a few times in the book of Acts. And there it has reference to those who were born of the Gentile background, not of the Jews. But they were converted to Christianity. This is in the book of Acts. Pro, uh, proselyte. Now, we wonder about the zeal of these scribes and Pharisees and who they proselyted. Now, some Jews did proselyte Gentiles before the church was established. Don't know how many. But it's thought here in this case that these were proselyting people to be like them. To be Pharisee. They were not trying to convert someone to God, but to themselves. And the Lord condemned that. He said, Woe unto you that have such zeal for proselyting. You're twofold more. Your version may say twice as much. Same idea. Twofold more a son of hell. When a disciple, been converted now, goes further than his teacher, then he is twice as zealous and deserving of hell. A son of hell, we find this type of expression a number of times in the Bible. It's suggesting, well, it's a Hebrewism, is it not? A son of whatever the character is, whatever, whoever the person is. These were referred to as a son of hell. Those who deserve to suffer in eternal hell. That, Jesus is talking plainly to these people. We think of other expressions that include sun, like the sons of light. Jesus was the light of the world. We're like him if we're sons of light. But on the other hand, we read about the sons of this world. That is, people who live like the world is. They were the sons of disobedience. That just says they were disobedient people. Sons of wrath. They can anticipate wrath coming into their lives because of the way they're living. Sons of. So when Jesus spoke of 
Judas Iscariot as a son of perdition. Literally, that means a son of perishing. He's saying, this is what your end's going to be, Judas. You're a son of perishing. Perdition. In verse 33, the Lord asks the question. We'll get to there in another lesson. How shall ye escape the judgment of hell? The way you're living, you're going right straight to hell. I mean, Jesus didn't hold back his words. He didn't pull his punches. He let them know. But what effect did it have upon them? John the Baptist was the same. When the scribes and the Pharisees came to him, there he was baptizing in the Jordan River. He says, flee the wrath to come. They were not ready because they were not willing to repent. Not ready to be baptized. You have to be willing to repent to be accepted by God in baptism. How callous and how hardened must one be to reject God's free gift of salvation. It's there for everybody. Jesus, by the grace of God, tasted of death for every man, Hebrews 2 and 9. He came to save all men. These scribes and the Pharisees were not that interested. How many today are interested in the salvation that Jesus has provided? There are only two places for our eternal abode. One is heaven. The other is hell. There's no third alternative. We're not going to just die and be annihilated. Cease to exist. That's what a lot of people are wishing for. But that's not what the Bible teaches. Jesus says to the Pharisees and the scribes, you're going, I'm sorry to say, he didn't add that, to hell. Let me read a passage for you. This is in Luke 7, and I'll read 29 and 30. And all the people, when they heard, that is, when they heard Jesus speaking, and the publicans justified God being baptized with the baptism of John. It says they, they justified God. That is, they acknowledged God by being baptized by John. Now, look at verse 30. But the Pharisees and the lawyers, that's the scribes, Rejected for themselves the counsel of God, being not baptized of him. How did they reject God, his counsel? By not being baptized by him. That's part of the Great Commission. That's a part of the gospel. That's a part of what we must obey, not to go to hell. People are hell bound. They're following the footsteps of the scribes and the Pharisees, maybe not living and acting as they did, but still unsaved. And we need to cry out to people, as Jesus did, so that they will not reject the counsel of God not being baptized of him. Hell is a place of eternal torment. 
of eternal anguish, punishment. In Matthew 25, the Lord depicts a judgment scene. Not the complete scene, but uh, something for us to consider. The very last verse in chapter 25, verse 46, he says, And these shall go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. The contrast is eternal punishment and eternal life. Hell is going to last just as long as heaven lasts. That's eternally, everlastingly. Verse 41, he said, Man, depart from me, ye cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Those on his left is the one he's addressing here. Going to eternal torment. In Luke 16, 23 and 24, Jesus tells us about a rich man who ignored the Mosaic law, who ignored God and what God would have him to do, and he was lost. When he died, he went to Hades, a place of torment and anguish. And he cries out to Abraham, just let Lazarus, that's the poor beggar, come over with the tip of his finger and touch my tongue with just a drop of water. Now, that wouldn't help much, I don't think. But that emphasizes how much that man was in anguish and in torment. Just a drop of water will make me feel better. In Luke 16, verse 13, one of the disciples approached Jesus and asked him this question. He said, Lord, are they few that are saved? Now, the Lord didn't say yes, no. He didn't use those words, but he answered the question emphatically. He said, strive to enter in by the narrow door, for many shall seek to enter in and shall not be able. Then he goes on. But think about the two words that he uses in contrast, strive with seek. I guess there are a lot of folks that, well, I'm seeking heaven. Jesus said, that's not enough. That's not good enough. That won't do. You have to strive to enter in that narrow door. The word strive, in the, the Greek word, is the word from whence we get our word agonize. So what's Jesus saying? He says, agonize to enter in that narrow door if you want to be among the saved. Agonize. Put forth endeavor with strenuous zeal to obtain that salvation. Now that doesn't mean we earn anything. But it means that we put our whole self into seeking salvation. Our whole self. They were not doing that. In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, 13 and 14, when he says, Enter ye in by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth unto destruction. And many, M-A-N-Y, and many enter therein. But narrow is the gate, and straightened, that is confined, is the way that leadeth unto life. And few there be who find it. The many shall be lost, the few shall be saved. All of us could be among the few. Few is a relative term. But when we compare, he's saying that the vast majority are going to be lost. The minority will be among the saved. What do we want? Well, certainly, 
we want to be saved. So why do people reject God's offer of salvation? Well, a number of reasons could be given. You've probably heard a number of them. Some folks are just not spiritually inclined. There are other things that are more important to them than getting ready to meet God in judgment and dying unprepared. They just, they don't think about dying. That'll happen maybe another 50 years, but right now I've got something else I want to do. They don't think that they will be judged. Eventually have to give an account for their lives. And some think they're good enough. And I appreciate the good morals, the benevolent spirit that you see among citizens, but not one good deed or all the good deeds will remove one sin. And we all sin. It's not the good deeds that will bring salvation. It's the blood of Christ. People just don't believe the Bible. People who are spiritually minded. Who will say, yes, I believe in the Bible. But there's two problems here. One is they're ignorant of the Bible. They really believed in the Bible. They do what it says. They don't know what it says. Secondly, they're just biased, prejudiced. Certainly the scribes and the Pharisees were. They did not accept Jesus for whom he claimed to be. Biased, prejudiced. Well, let's go on to another accusation that we have here. This is in verse, uh, verses 16 to 22, the third accusation. The practice of making distinctions in oaths and vows where there is not any distinction. In an oath, one attempts to bind by something greater than oneself. For example, you may have heard people say, well, I swear by God I did this, or that's the truth, or whatever they want. I swear by God. Or some will say, I swear on the Bible that I'm telling you the truth. We notice in this context, he speaks about the temple, Solomon's temple, and the gold, that is the gold that adorned the temple, speaks about the altar, about the gifts that are placed upon the altar. One is so binding, they think, that if they swore by that, they got to keep their oath or their vow. Now, if they swear by this minor thing over here, that doesn't bother them. They can lie out, out of it, and it doesn't bother them. Why? Well, because that wasn't a binding oath. Jesus says, the temple is just as great as the gold that adorns it. The altar is just as great as the sacrifices, the gifts that are placed upon it. The reasons behind these distinctions is hypocritical and evil. Jesus showed that all oaths were ultimately related to God. They all will eventually get back to God. And when it speaks about them being a debtor, they mean he is a debtor to God. They are indebted to God to keep their word, to speak the truth, to keep their vows and their oaths. To prevent this evil practice, what did Jesus say? 
swear not at all. Let me read a few verses from Matthew 5. Again, this is in our Sermon on the Mount, and he's talking about oaths and vows. We start at verse 33. Again, ye have heard that it was said to them of old time, Thou shalt not forswear thyself. What does it mean to forswear? Maybe you have another version. It means to swear falsely. Do not forswear thyself. Do not swear falsely. But shall perform unto the Lord thine oaths. You swear to do something. You don't do it. That's not good. But I say unto you, swear not at all. Neither by the heaven, for it is the throne of God. Nor by the earth, for it is the footstool of his feet. Nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Neither shalt thou swear by, the, by thy head. For thou canst not make one white, one hair white or black. But let your speech be yea, yea, nay, nay. If you say yes, that's what it is. If you say no, that's what it is. Don't be dilly-dallying back and forth. And whatsoever is more than this is of the evil one, is of the devil. So, the Lord places actually two limitations on this statement. One is oaths that are taken in the name of God must be kept. And second, judicial oaths. Uh, we won't take time. There are scriptures that will go with both of those. If you've got my book, you can find that in Matthew 5 in that passage. Jesus wants his disciples to tell the truth on all occasions. Doesn't matter who's there, what the temptation is. In fact, if everyone did, there would be no need for oaths, would there? And that's the way the Lord would have us go. I'm closing off. His fourth Fifth and sixth accusations. Well, the fourth one is they're taking an interest in details while neglecting the, the weightier matters of the law. Talking about their tithing, common and mint, anise and so forth. Things that go out of the land they thought had to be tithed. But the Lord said, that's fine. You go ahead with that tithing. But you're neglecting the greater, the weightier measures of the law. Like mercy. love, justice, and doing these other things. The weightier matters of the law. We need to be merciful, loving, have strong faith, just in our dealings. Then verse 25 and 26, he talks about the cup and the platter. They kept it clean on the outside. You know, you look at it, oh, that looks great. But it was on the inside that it was still dirty. Now, this is a figure of the person. On the outside, we wash our hands before we eat. That was a ceremony. They had on these and all the other things. But on the inside, the Lord had nothing but condemnation. Then he talked about the same type of uh, accusation. When they go by the cemetery, the tombstones are all painted white. Oh, I was that. Well, if they touch something there, that would make them unclean ceremonially under the Mosaic law, or according to their laws of uh, tradition. 
So they made them all white. Said they now they appear just just so nice on the outside, but inside, dead men's bones and all uncleanness. He's talking about the outside of the individual and the inside, the heart, the soul, and the spirit. We're to keep that clean. Don't be a hypocrite, Jesus tells us. Do what he wants us to do. An undue interest in external appearances rather than appearing before God with a pure heart. Jesus' blood was shed that we might all have a pure heart. That our hearts might be cleansed of every stain committed by us in our sinning. And if you've not obeyed the gospel, if you've not completed your obedience, the Lord wants you to come. He wants you to obey him. You believe that Jesus is the Son of God? That's the first step. Without faith, it's impossible to be well-pleasing unto him. He wants us to change our life, to resolve to live like he wants us to live. That's repentance. Except you repent, you shall all in like manner perish, Luke 13 and 3. Confess our faith in Jesus, be buried with him in baptism for the remission of every sin we've ever committed. Bearing the old man, raising the new man to walk in his steps. You're subject to the gospel invitation. If we can help in any way, won't you come as together we stand and sing?